Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the privilege of being able to look into your word. Father, we want to be lovers of your truth. It is your truth that sets people free. It is not man's inventions or man's best guesses or ideas. It is truth and God's truth and only God's truth that can set us free. And tonight, Lord God, as we look at the very thing that is central to the gospel, I ask you, Lord, that you would give us keen insight. Lord, there are a lot of ideas in left field that are all around us in this culture, in this day, that bombard the truth of your word. We need to sift through that, and we need to be able to see through that, and we need to be able to know your word, to be able to combat these lies, and be able to defend the faith, and see this lost world one to Jesus Christ. So Father, would you equip us tonight with your truth, in Jesus' name, amen. Here's my question. What does the cross mean to you? What does the cross mean to you? Yes, Leanne, what does the cross mean to you? Our sins are forgiven. Okay. And this gives us an opportunity to go to heaven for eternity and be with Jesus. Awesome. Good. Okay. Yeah, Zach. I mean, to me, it's a visual representation of Christianity and namely the gospel. Okay. All right. And so you're kind of seeing the cross itself. So it symbolizes the, what did you say? The, the gospel? Right. Christianity okay. as a whole, especially the gospel. Okay. All right. Anybody else? Kate? Um, for me, the cross is the only backdrop that I ever have to view my sins against ever again. Okay. Okay. Instead of bitterness and despair, because I don't have to bear the weight of my guilt even when I'm convicted of my sin. All right. Because that weight is on Jesus. And so okay. when I see my sin, I see the grace of God already there. Okay. And by weight, you mean the payment of that. The you don't have to bear the that guilt, weight. The shame. Yes. Okay. And your son over here was saying amen the whole time. Uh, that, didn't you guys clearly understand him saying amen? I did. Okay. Anybody else? The cross. What does that mean to you? Scott. It's, uh, it was a, well, still is, it's a uh, torture instrument, it's a form of torture and humiliation okay. and uh, prolonged death and suffering. And Jesus did all that for me when I should have been there. Okay. All right. In my prayer, thank you guys, by the way, and you too, buddy. Amen. In my prayer, I mentioned that there are a lot of views out there that run contrary to the gospel. Let's understand that the gospel and all that it, all that it is, is truly repugnant to this world. Even in what is commonly called today the church. Okay? And what I mean by the church, I mean from liberals all the way to conservatives. Okay? Any church building that's got a steeple, they can believe in left field theology, but they're a church. And I'm including that. Okay? It's not truly the church of Jesus um, because many of these 
so-called churches truly are not believers in Jesus Christ. They've never been born again. As a matter of fact, they would reject that term, being born again. Many of them would. There's a, there, are, there are a lot of views out there that run contrary to the gospel. And one particular one that you're going to come up against is the liberal view. Now, in the liberal view, and this is also held by... <coughs> excuse me. Um, Neo-Orthodox, you remember Karl Barth, um, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, uh, I'm going to give a quote from Reinhold Niebuhr here in just a moment, Um, but these types of people, uh, William Barclay, um, these types of people hold to what is commonly called the moral influence theory. I'm going to put that up here, moral influence theory. Theory. Now I'm going to be putting together a couple of, uh, I, I don't want to call them theories, I don't like that term, but I'm going to call them viewpoints. This viewpoint is the only one that I'm going to mention tonight that is a wrong viewpoint. And the others are good because they are biblical, and what they will do is they will, like a diamond has facets that reflect light, and make that diamond look even be- more beautiful. So these viewpoints of the cross, or the atonement, that we're, that's the term we're going to use tonight, w- reflects the, the glory of God. The, the manifold wisdom of God, Ephesians 3 says. The moral influence theory basically says this. They would, you would talk to them, and you would say, you know what, I believe that Jesus died for my sins. And they would say, yes, he did. But here's what they mean by that. The moral influence theory climbs aboard this idea, greater love has no man than this, that he laid down his life for his friends. Meaning, and they give a twist to this, meaning that Jesus' death on the cross did not accomplish anything in the heavenlies or the spirit realm or for God or man. Except this, this and only this. It was a great example for us to follow. When we follow that life of sacrifice, we sin less and less and less. Therefore, they say, Jesus died for my sins. Do you understand what I just said? Um, If you didn't understand, I'm just going to repeat it. Jesus' death on the cross accomplished nothing except being an example for me of sacrifice. That sacrifice speaks to me. Jesus died on the cross and he didn't deserve it. He was unjustly accused and died. And that sacrifice challenges me to live a life of sacrifice, which is the opposite of a life of sin. Therefore, Jesus' death on the cross challenges me to sin less. And that's all they believe that the cross accomplished. Can I ask you, in that theory, viewpoint, um, why did Jesus sacrifice? How many of you have ever heard that viewpoint before? Raise your hand. All right, so I'm going to be asking you, why... Is that, or how was that 
death on the cross a sacrifice? It's an example of sacrifice. So it leads me to live a life of sacrifice. But what was Jesus sacrificing? What was he sacrificing for? Here's why nobody is raising their hands. Because that view of the cross, there is no sacrifice. Okay? The cross is emptied of its power. It is simply stands as a symbol. Now, it was right and proper for Zach to pick up on this concept of a symbol. But that's all it is to them. It's a symbol that has no power. It is a symbol that has been robbed of any meaning. It did nothing for God. It does nothing for us except show us to sacrifice. And then the question has to follow, what did Jesus sacrifice? He gave up his life, but what did he do it for? He was falsely accused. You can't say that Jesus gave up his life for me. Do you you understand? Mm -hmm. Jesus couldn't have given up his life for me. To to accomplish what? To do what? To be a sacrifice. But what did he sacrifice? It's a circular reasoning theory. He sacrificed to show me how to sacrifice. What did he sacrifice then? He sacrificed to show me how to... That means nothing. Okay? The the moral influence theory, the hub, the heart of it is sacrifice, but it's a pop-up sacrifice. There truly is no sacrifice in this theory. There's no sacrifice. Jesus sacrificed nothing. He laid his life down to do it. See, when you sacrifice something, that means, like your life, you lay it down for something. Jesus laid his life down to sacrifice for me. But he, he didn't get anything for me. So we can't call it a sacrifice. And, and so the moral influence theory is throughout churches today. And it robs the cross of its power. Tonight, I want us to put the power back in the cross because that's what scripture does. That is what the gospel does. Reinhold Niebuhr says this, describing this moral influence theory and and liberal theology in general. He says that God without wrath brought men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministrations of a Christ without a cross. I'm going to just read that one more time. A God without wrath. Oh, great. Here we go. Let me try that one more time. A God without wrath brought men without sin because they, they define sin in a way that is just a, an offense to one another and not toward God. Um, men without sin into a kingdom without judgment because God's going to judge no one or they're all going to heaven through the ministrations of a Christ without a cross. There is no cross. There is no sacrifice. They call it a sacrifice, but there truly is no sacrifice in the moral influence theory of the cross. So we need to dig into this understanding of Jesus' atonement. We need to be able to let scripture fill in and combat this heresy that's out there. And we're actually going to be looking at Reinhold Niebuhr's view, and I just quoted him. But he holds to a neo-Orthodox view, which in itself empties the cross of its power. Okay? Mm-hmm. Um, it's just that they are that viewpoint rails against liberalism, rails against conservative views, 
but is bankrupt itself. Now, I'm not going to get into the New Orthodox view too much because we've already looked at that in the past. We do need now to look at what Scripture has to say concerning Jesus' atonement. This word atonement came about in the English language as two words, at one meant. What what do you suppose one meant would mean? Any guesses? Together. Okay. Together. One meant. Oneness. At one with God. And so that's what Jesus' atonement has done. It has made us at one with God. It it has brought us back to God. Any particular theological word that you can think of that sums up what I just said there. Making us at one with God. Aside from atonement. Reconciliation. God has reconciled us through Christ. Okay? He has reconciled us to him. But we're going to get to reconciliation on number two day. Not quite yet. So let's look at this uh, first particular view. Um, And again, it is a viewpoint. It is not a theory. And again, a viewpoint, this particular viewpoint is a right viewpoint And it seeks to highlight a certain aspect of the cross. All right? And that is this concept of a ransom. What does the word ransom mean to you? What's the first thing that pops into your mind? Ransom. Payment. Mel Gibson. Payment. Mel Gibson. Gibson. You lost me in that. Okay. All right. Josh? I was just agreeing too. Okay. I think kidnapping. I think kidnapping. How many of you think of kidnapping when you think of ransom? Come on, raise those hands, most almost all of you. Okay, and only for that reason, I don't like this word ransom, okay? And it's not like it's uh, randomi in the Greek or something, <laughs> okay? We're, we're not, random, random is just our word that we have used uh, for this Greek word, um, which actually is the, let, let me just give you the Greek word here for uh, ransom, and it is... I'm finding it. Lutron. Lutron. It comes from the Greek word luo, which means to loose or release. So this word atonement, or excuse me, this word ransom means a releasing. Okay? Isn't that interesting? A releasing. Can you spell it? Lutron. L-U-T-R-O-N. L-U-T-R-O-N. From luo, L-U-O. And that's a long time. Anyway, it, it, it's a releasing or a loosing, but it is done with a payment. So it's not as if, for example, Satan is ransoming us and he has kidnapped us because in ransoming, we get this idea that we've at one point believed the child was a part of a family, was ransomed only for a short time, and then the ransomer, the one who's writing the ransom notes, got paid off and then released the child. That is not what this is, okay? It's close to it, but there, by the way, there's, there's no kidnapping that took place. There was a captivity, though, that took place. You see, Satan, through sin, captured us. We were in his grasp, and the Bible says... According to what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 20, verse 28, he says, Just as the Son of Man 
did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So this word ransom is, means a releasing, but it implies a payment. So there is a payment that's made, and there is a releasing of the captive as well. This would happen many times, for example, when someone owned a slave, and the, slave was per- the slave's freedom was purchased. The slave was then free to go. Uh, he didn't even necessarily belong to the new owner, but he was free to go. In our case, though, we do belong to a new owner. Our, the, the payment for our slavery has been paid. Here's my question. To whom was the payment made? Think about that. Don't answer too quickly. To whom was the payment made? Okay. The payment was made to God, you say. All right. Who held us captive? Satan Satan held us captive, so God paid himself. For Satan to let us go. Did we pay? Did God pay Satan off? No. No, he did not. Okay, God did not pay Satan off. So that aspect of the ransom goes out the window. All right. So if God was paid, why would God want to pay Himself to own us? Kate. Okay, the debt is against God, and this is true. This is true. And so what we do is we have a very unusual situation here in which Satan is holding us captive, but we are indebted not to Satan, but to God. And so I'm going to word it this way. The payment is not necessarily, it is certainly not made to Satan, and it is not necessarily made to God, but the payment is is made to the principle of the righteous demands of God's holiness, okay? And so it is made to principle. It is made to the demands of God's justice. And so in that way, that demand for justice has been paid, all right? Yes. Yes. Okay. But there is more to it in that, but right. yes. Yeah. Okay, Cole? It's really, you know, maybe the term ransom, I mean, I know it's, it's used here and everything, but maybe the, the understanding back then was different from what we have now. The reason I say that is, it, is I suppose it was more like uh, punishment. You know, Jesus took our punishment for us. Uh, would, that be a little, would that explain that a little better? I, you're, you're jumping into another viewpoint, though, that we're going to touch on. And, and so I'm, I'm not going to say no, but the idea of ransom does not do that. Okay? Because the ransom has to do with payment for releasing. Okay? Juliana? It, to me, it just reminds me of the parable of the debtors in Matthew 18. Okay. The king released him by forgiving his debt. So okay. it was a debt against himself that he released. Okay, and so he canceled the payment. All right. 
See, a, a, a ransom implies a payment, and there indeed was a payment, but the payment was to God's righteous demands, and then the payment was canceled. The debt was canceled. Okay? Okay, thought? Um, there was a time several years ago that um, I was trying to reach out to a Jewish girl, and so um, I found a verse in Psalms that talked about like who can give the ransom for a life. It's, mm-hmm. it's too high. And um, so I ended up doing a study in the Old Testament of ransom, but my study ended up crisscrossing a lot with the idea of redemption and um, and of a redeemer and a kinsman redeemer and how okay. that whole world played out with like slavery. So for me, like those ideas are kind of linked because yes. um, it's like a really deeply culturally ingrained thing that I think is hard to understand, but like then you would sell yourself into slavery when you had debts you couldn't pay or, um, you know, the family members die and now you have, like, you have to lose your land and things like that. And then the kinsman redeemer's role would be to buy back your land for you, okay. to buy you back out of slavery or to, um, to, to marry um, the unmarried woman so that she could have children. And so it's this idea of, like, restoring you back by paying this price and, and doing these okay. All right. The goal is certainly restoration, okay? Now, it's not restoration to what we have known in the past, because all we have known in the past is sin and separation from God. Restoration as far as what Adam first had. That is the goal. It is where sin uh, is paid for, and now we have reconciliation with the Father. This term, redemption, I coupled the term ransom and redemption because the idea of redemption is, is what? I, I think I touched on it. Wasn't it this past Saturday night, redemption? Um, what does redemption mean? What does it imply? It means to like, cash something in, turn something in for something that you get. Okay. So I give you one thing and you give me something in return. We give money and we get a product or a service in return. Okay, this concept of redemption has everything to do with purchasing. I want to. Uh, by the way, Romans three twenty three. It's supposed to be Romans three twenty three and twenty four. Some of you did your homework and you looked up that verse and you said, "I don't see the word reconciliation or redemption in there." It's because it's in verse twenty four. Sorry. Um, but I don't want to touch on that one because I can only touch on some of these verses. I hope you, all of you did read through them. If you didn't, you want to do that this week. But 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 and 20 says this. Yeah, it says, hang on a second. It says this. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God. You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. So the idea, this gives us the implications then. If we have been purchased, who do we belong to? We belong to God. And if we belong to God, what then? We honor him. We live for him. We are not our own. 
We are slaves of this master, and he has called us to a certain lifestyle that I believe is a lifestyle we can enjoy. It is the lifestyle we were created for, that sin uh, set us off track from. Now we are restored to God's plan, if you will, for our life. We're reconnecting with him. We're being realigned with him to be able to fulfill a specific purpose. And that purpose has everything to do with honoring God, not ourselves. So we don't live for ourselves anymore because that's that was the pathway of sin. We've been redeemed or bought from that old way of life. And now we have been purchased for one purpose alone, that is for God and his purposes, okay? Now, I want to draw something up here on the board, and I'm sorry if I'm going to obstruct this, but the question that I have is, when were you purchased? And I'm going to draw a timeline up here, if you'll allow me. This right here is the cross. This right here is your <coughs> conversion. This is not an easy question to answer. When were you purchased? Were you purchased at the cross or were you purchased at conversion? Leanne, you want to be bold and share what you think it is? The conversion. Um, the cross gives us the opportunity, but we have to make the choice do that. Okay. All right. Okay. We're moving in in a, a, a direction, a good direction here, Scott. I would say the cross, because that's where Jesus paid it all, was at the cross. Okay. So the, all right. it was paid for there. And conversion is our what is what was redemption? Okay. It is our redemption of that payment. Mm -hmm. Okay. That gift. All right. So it's like on layaway until we cash it. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Many people view this transaction, if you will, the cross and our conversion as one. Okay. And there is a tendency, for example, in the Calvinist strain of, of theology to view them as one. And we're going to get into this maybe if we have time a little bit later. But what is called limited atonement. And they have, they're wanting to see the two of them together in this purchasing transaction. And for, for tonight, and I believe, it, it's, I believe it's biblical, I want us to see them separate. Because here's my question. Here is me at age 10. That, that's, that's me. And I've got a frown on my face because I don't know Jesus yet. And here's me at 14. <coughs> If Christ purchased me at the cross, does he own me here? No. Yes. Can I say at age 10, I have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb? No. I cannot. I would challenge you, look through the scriptures, that that word redemption, or we have been redeemed before we came to Christ, before our conversion. I don't think you're going to find a passage like that. Or that that age 10, I was purchased or bought. So we need to come up with an understanding of what happened at the cross and what's happened at conversion. And there, is, there can be some confusion with regard to this. 
Um, because the Bible doesn't always separate them. Many times it sees them as an event, and, and I'm going to suggest due to this concept of God's election, but I'm not going to get into that. That's for another time. All right? God, God's, the purchase price was paid for here. The purchase price was paid. <coughs> but the purchase is applied at conversion. I hope I'm, you, that doesn't sound like I'm speaking out of both sides of my mouth. The purchase price was paid. It was there. But it was not applied to me. And I cannot say that God bought me at the cross. He bought me by the cross, just not at the cross. All right? And, and if we're not careful, if we say that Christ purchased us at the cross, and we say that Christ died for everyone, and this is the rub with Calvinism, this is why they see it together here, if that's the case, then Christ purchased everyone and everyone would be going to heaven. And that certainly would not be the, the case. Christ bought everyone. Everyone belongs to him. But if you were to look at 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, we see that in Peter's mind, he is seeing these as separate transactions. Forgive me for using that word transaction if you don't feel comfortable with it, but this word redemption is a transactional term, and that's why I'm using the term transaction, okay? It's a business term. You go into the marketplace and you purchase, you buy something, okay? So 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, it says... Wow, I lost myself. Where am I here? Okay, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God. So he's speaking to Christians and he's saying, hey, you guys, you belong to God. Why? Because by Jesus' blood, he purchased us so we belong to him. All right? But then he goes on and he says, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but listen to this, now you are the people of God. So at one point here, I was not belonging to God. But here, I am belonging to God. Here, he did not own me, but here he does. At age 14, at my conversion, I can say, I am bought, I am purchased, and I am owned by, by God through the cross, or by the cross. Not at the cross, but by the cross. So the purchase price, this ransom price, was given at the cross and then applied at my conversion. Okay? Um... Did, did you have a, a question? Yes, the end. I was just going to, how I'm thinking about it in my mind is if I'm holding a winning lottery ticket <coughs> that I had, 
am I a winner if I hold it and never cash it in? No, I'm only a winner if I cash it in. Okay. Okay. You can go that right. John, did you have a question yeah. or comment? So I'm guessing this goes into election. If what if you died at ten years old? So but would you say like God's grace sustained you until you were fourteen? I'm sorry, God's grace what? Sustained you. Okay. I I can't answer a hypothetical question that I know isn't true. Okay, and, and that, that's going to be our problem. And whenever we're, yes, it can get into election, okay? Um, because I know that I'm saved now, but if I died at 10, I wouldn't be saved. But by God's grace, he let me live past 10. So I got converted at age 14. And so I can't answer, the, I can't answer that hypothetical question, all right? I, I do know that the purchase transaction was made at the cross. It was made available, but it was not applied to me until I turned 14. Otherwise, I could say, I belong to God at age 10. Now, here is the reason why I'm making this a big deal. Within the teaching of universal salvation, universal salvation, they say that the atonement is universal, that is, it is made for everyone, and it is applied to everyone. Did you follow what I just said? Christ's death was for everyone, and it was applied to everyone. So, universal salvation separates these two events by saying, okay, we were purchased by Christ. Um, excuse me one second. It, it sees them together rather than separate. And in seeing them together, it's an all-or-none proposition. Now, don't let me lose you here. This is what Calvinism will do. And the scripture does speak of the cross and our conversion. You were bought with a price. It doesn't tell us when we were bought. Were we bought at the cross? Yes, but technically we weren't owned until our conversion. But that verse doesn't tell us that. And so within Calvinism and universal, the universal salvation, there is a desire to see these two wed and come together so that the Calvinists would say, technically, Christ died only for the elect because the price was paid and applied only to the elect. Universal sal those who embrace universal salvation say, no, 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 no. Christ didn't die just for the elect. Christ died for everyone and therefore Everyone, the, 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 the purchase price was applied to everyone, therefore everyone's going to heaven. And I am saying, I think it's very biblical to see these as separate events. The purchase price was paid, and we could look through scripture, and there's, there's plenty of them. We'll, we'll, we'll get to one in just a moment. 1 John 2, 2, just turn there for a moment. And in 1 John 2, 2, it makes it clear that Christ did die for the sins of the whole world. And if Christ died for the sins of the whole world, and I, and I need to get into that a little bit more, I will in a moment, then does that mean that as a result, everybody is going to heaven? Absolutely not, because it must then be applied. And I, I just don't want to confuse the payment with the application. All right? So, just give me a moment. Here. And in 1 John 2, 2, if you could turn there, and maybe you're already there and I'm not, but 1 John 2, 2, 
There we go. It says, referring to Jesus Christ, he is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. Now, I understand that... Wow, should I get into that? Um, The whole world can be understood to mean the whole world as in all different kinds of people throughout the world. And that it's not... and, And the Calvinist view would be that Christ didn't die for every single person in the world, but rather that he died for all kinds of people throughout the whole world. The only problem that I have with that is in this context, John is purposely setting up a contrast between a believer's sins and the sins of the whole world, okay? And I think we're going to be stretching it to say anything other than the sins of the whole world. And John uses the world to mean those who are lost. And you can just do a little word study throughout the first John. By world, he means those who live in the world and who live according to the pattern of the world. Um, if the, he contrasts the love of the Father with the love of the world. They're the ones who are lost. So we are saved. But what about those who are lost? He is saying Jesus died for all of their sins, okay? Now, comment, question? Yeah, uh, the question I've got is the word own. Yeah, I'm sorry, is what? Is the word own, ownership. Oh, okay. Um, you're, you're, you're saying that God doesn't own us until we're converted. Until okay. we convert. Right. So, that I don't understand that because if he doesn't own us before that, he, he, he created man after. And if he doesn't own us before that conversion, how can he pass um, the final judgment on us when we when we go before him? Okay, does God own the sinner who goes to hell? He created him. Okay, but does he own him? Salvifically, he does. He he owns. He's his master and his boss. He is the Lord of the lost, whether they acknowledge that or not. But does he own them? He's not a servant. The person is not a servant of him, but that doesn't mean he doesn't own him. Okay. Here's a great way to test it. See if there's a Bible verse that would say that God owns the lost. Okay. That would be easy. easy. I, I'm, I've not done that personal study. I've done it some. I have, at this point, I've not come across a Bible verse that would say I, I he owns think you would, so. I think you would get, it would be difficult to find that, just thinking, you know, logically. Okay. So we use the word redeemed or purchased or owned. There's some other, there's a couple of words we could use. Does, can those words be used to apply to someone who does not know, even someone who's elect, who does not know Christ? The Bible doesn't do that. I mean, we can own something that's not alive. We can own inanimate objects. Okay. If you don't mind, let me just take you back then to 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. We are a people belonging to God. And then he says, at one time we were not a people, i.e. belonging to God, but now we are a people, i.e. belonging to God. So Peter tells us that at one point we truly did not belong to him. But then he says, he says, once you had not received mercy, 
Mm-hmm. But now you have received mercy. And so he's, that, he says, once you were not a people, now you, the, now you are the people of God. Once you were not, rece- not received mercy. Okay, so when did you receive mercy, Stan? On, on my conversion. Okay, when I received, good, right. When I redeemed the, the purchase price of this. All right, so you received mercy here, right. and you were purchased here. You were bought, you were owned by God at this point. You became his pierced ear slave, to use an Old Testament term. But at age 10, for me anyway, before my conversion, I was not a pierced ear slave. I was not his servant. I was a slave of sin, not a slave of God or righteousness. So in a sense, he, he is the Lord over everyone, but he does not own them excuse me, as his special possession. Who owns the unsaved? Satan does. Okay, so yeah. he completely owns the unsaved. Yeah, they. Right. He 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 deceives them. We they are a part of, and we were at one time a part of his dominion. Mm-hmm. So in that way, we could say he owned us. We got into this just a little bit, if you remember, with the concept of possession, demon possession. A Christian cannot be demon owned. If anything, it means that a Christian can have a demon, not a demon can have a Christian or possess a Christian. Just like giving yourself over to sin is handing yourself over to somebody else, which is the devil. Sin, basically. Okay, and, and a Christian can't do that. He is owned by God, not owned by Satan. So it's, and it just had to do with terminology. That's, that's why I threw out the term demon-possessed. We use the word demonizomai or demonized right. or has a demon. Okay, but it goes back to that concept of, of possession or ownership. Question, comment. I mean, he's. Uh, I guess I, I see what like the predicament that Scott is raising. Is this, he's God, and he did make everything. He can do whatever he wants. Is this just going back to the idea that he's relinquishing his power over our free will? Just the system that he designed the world with our free will. He gave us the option to be owned by somebody else because we have free will. And we're, he gives us the option to choose, and then we chose sin with that comes bondage. Like why? Yes, sure. Okay. With with our free will, we chose sin. We we're in bondage to that. Uh, when we talked about original sin, we we talked about this concept of free will, and in that free will, we have free will, but we are slaves to sin and can do nothing other than sin, and that kind of casts a shadow on this concept of free will. But nevertheless, we are free to choose. But we will always choose sin outside of Christ. And so we're slaves to it. And we've, we've, we have made that choice. So the idea is God still owns everything. He's the one that gets to judge because it's his system. But he's allowed this flexibility within that system so that we can be owned by the devil. Okay. I, I'm just trying to like see this in a way that doesn't put like Satan having more power or something like that over... I guess when you ask the question, that's what, okay, so does that mean like somebody has power over God in some way? But I guess this is just because God has let us this happen. Make this choice. Okay. So he's like, in that, words, in that respect, he's like a judge. He has judicial power over the unsaved, but he doesn't have ownership over them. Well, okay. at, 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 on the last day when we get judged. What, what, what were you going to say to you? Uh, I'm going to say that scriptures. Explicit that Satan does own the unbeliever. Okay. That they're trapped in a snare. Okay. They can't right. escape this trap. And, and what so I'm saying is that from a sovereign perspective, God does own the world. And God never 
Satan never has power over the unbeliever unless it is decreed by God. Right. So in that sense, in that broad sense, yes, God does have dominion over mankind in general. But salvifically, from a knowing a pignosis level, they don't know God. Like Ephesians chapter 2 says, for you are once were in the world, and you walked with the Gentiles, as a Gentile do, without God. So that word without God literally sees that you cut off, like there was no relationship. There's, there's an enmity for there. If you don't mind, let me, let me just kind of wrap this up. Because we're, we're talking about this ownership in kind of two different ways. And we're not disagreeing, but we're, you, we're defining our terms of the, the word own in two different ways. God is the Lord of the lost. But even though he is the Lord of the lost, he has say over their eternal destiny. We have not looked, to, the lost do not look to him as Lord. And if they did, they would call upon him and be saved. But they do not, so they are lost. Does that mean that God is only the Lord over the righteous? And the answer is no, he is the Lord over all creation, the lost and the saved. And don't forget your little horsey, buddy. It's a dog. Dog, sorry, it's a small horse, it's a dog, of course. But it's a pink polka-dotted bird, yeah. So... In, in that way, this concept of Lord, Jesus is Lord over all creation, but he is, he, before I became a Christian, he was not my Lord. I did not call upon him as Lord, okay? That's salvation, all right? So I'm going to move on here, um, but this concept of ownership, the purchase price was made at the cross, the application was made at conversion, okay? Um, in in Back in, you know, some time ago, one of the main concerns within Calvinism was universal uh, salvation found in Unitarianism. And the two were going head to head, say, in the Second Great Awakening. And the Calvinists stood firm. No, Jesus died only for the elect because those are the, you know, Jesus' blood was not spilled for naught. It was whatever his blood was spilled for, it accomplished, secured, bought and was applied to, and the, those who believed in universal, universal salvation was, well, he, he, he died for everyone. And they would point to passages like First, Tim, First John 2, 2. See, Jesus died for everyone. But they got rid of this concept of justification because the application was universal. It was to everyone. And so trying to see these two as one, the Calvinists were saying it was for the elect. The Universalists were saying, no, it was for everyone. And... In a sense, the Calvinist, my understanding here is that the Universalist is right in that the purchase price was made and made available to all, but its application is limited and only, as the, elect, as the Calvinist would say, for the elect, okay? Because those are the ones who are converted, all right? Again, I'm, I'm mentioning throwing this word around election, and we're not going to get to that until two weeks from, or in, uh, anyway... A further lesson. So let, let's move on if we can. Um, I, I want us to look at this concept of a substitutionary sacrifice. If you were to turn to Isaiah 53.6, let's do that, by the way. Isaiah 53.6, understand this passage is filled with theolo- rich theological truth 700 years before Jesus came to this earth. Okay, does that not blow your mind? 
All right, this is not a passage from Romans. This is a passage from the Old Testament, 600, more than 600 years before Romans was even written. And it says in Isaiah 53, 6. Do I say 6? Let me read 5 and 6. It says, but he was pierced. Now, this is a reference to the coming Messiah. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. Then he goes on and he says, and by his wounds, we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each one of us has turned to his own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity or the sin of us all. Now, this brings in this concept and starts giving us a new perspective. It's not just a ransom price or redemption price. Now we see this concept of a substitutionary sacrifice. What I had up here on the, uh, the board, um, moral influence theory. Moral influence theory says, well, who was the ransom paid to? See, it wasn't paid to Satan and it wasn't necessarily paid to God, so let's get rid of it. That's what they do, no lie. You read William Barclay and his view of the atonement. He said that he once held to a substitutionary sacrifice. How tragic. He once held to a substitutionary view of the, sac- of the sacrifice of the cross, specifically when we get into propitiation here, satisfying the wrath of God. But he came to a revelation I suppose an angel of light appeared to him, etc. Being facetious. <laughs> William Barclay, by the way, neo-orthodox, he was called by Dr. Lloyd, uh, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, a powerful preacher in his day um, from England. And um, Unspeakable Joy, by the way, if you ever have a chance to read that book, excellent book, book, Unspeakable Joy, powerful preacher. He called William Barclay, who lived in the next country over, the most dangerous man on earth because William Barclay taught like a conservative and believed like a liberal okay William Barclay when he specifically when you get down to this concept of the atonement what did Jesus actually do for us on the cross well he died for us okay but liberals can say that what did he actually do he said we need to get rid of the ransom theory and that's what they call it a theory the ransom theory of the atonement because the ransom is not paid to anyone but I did say it was paid to the principle of God's righteous demands. Okay? So it was paid, and it satisfied that. God's righteous demands. He then would throw, throw out this concept of substitutionary atonement because cause he holds to the moral influence theory. This view, he, he does that because of his view of God's wrath that we're going to get into in just a moment. But this view right here, The substitutionary sacrifice of Jesus. It says this, Isaiah says, the punishment that was due us, he bore. He took on himself the punishment that was ours. And and how exactly does he, he word it? The punishment that brought us peace, reconciliation. Except he just didn't use that deep theological word here. He, he, but he got at the heart of it. That's what reconciliation is. Peace, peace with God. He bore the punishment that brought us peace. 
So what punishment? Who punished? Who was the punisher here? Who punished Jesus? God the Father. God the Father punished Jesus. Why would he punish poor, innocent, likable Jesus? Why would the Father do that? That sounds cruel. Why would he do that? Because of us. Okay. Okay. So instead of me being punished, because the wages of sin is death, to the extent of complete eternal separation from God that is forever and ever and ever and ever. That is the just punishment that I deserve. Jesus took that punishment upon himself. So here's what a substitutionary atonement does. At one minute, being made peace with God. On the one hand, it is taking, imagine Jesus on the cross, taking upon him my sins, taking from me, Mike Curtis, all of those horrible, horrendous millions, no doubt, of sins upon himself to the extent, and this blows me away constantly, that script, Paul could, could say that he who knew no sin became sin for me. That's unfathomable. God becoming sin. He so identified himself with my sins that the Father punished him as if Jesus himself had committed those sins. They were, my sins were placed upon him and he then received the punishment that belonged to me. That is a substitutionary sacrifice. That is Jesus stepping in my stead, taking the full blow of hell itself upon him, that separation from God that I deserved, that punishment for sin that I deserved, to the extent that Jesus, he wasn't just quoting Psalm 22, 1, when he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He lived it. That was happening at that moment. It wasn't just a nice scripture, you know, like he was quoting scripture on the cross and just, you know, declaring victory in Jesus' name. Uh, but he was, being Jesus, he, he truly was being separated from the Father. And, and this is where the Jehovah's Witness say, wait a second. See, here is where you've got to be wrong. This is why Jesus can't be God. Because that's saying that God was separated from God. You know, you're right. And it doesn't make sense intellectually. But let's, guess what? God loves me. That does not make sense. But scripture teaches it, I believe it. Jesus himself took upon himself my sins and was separated from God the Father when he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That doesn't truly make sense. But scripture teaches it. And so I embrace it. And, and I, there are certain things that I believe that I do not fully understand. And that's why we, the scripture says the secret things belong to the Lord, but the revealed things belong to us. We may not always understand them. The understanding is, is, is a mystery, but this is truth. And I'm going to believe this truth. Jesus, who is God come in the flesh, took my sins upon himself to the extent where he was separated from his father on that cross, and he took the full brunt, the full blow of the Father's punishment to the point where he declared it is finished. Now, there's a common teaching 
in our day. You'll find it on TV. Um, I want to make sure that I get the name correct here, and it might take me just a moment to find it. And wonderful, here we go. Yes, E.W. Kenyon proposed this thought. He truly believed it was biblical, but I, I'm going to tell you that it's not a salvation issue for us. If you believe it, you're going to help, but it begins to empty the cross of its power, and it's this, that when Jesus died on the cross, he went to hell, and he fought a three-day battle with Satan, and he wrestled the keys away from Satan, and thereby secured my salvation. And then, the, the, then it must be stated that Jesus did not win my salvation at the cross. He won my salvation in hell, in the physical place called hell. Well, number one, we know that nobody is in hell right now. That won't happen until Christ's second coming. So, okay, we'll defer. He means Hades. Well, that isn't true. Number one, since when does Satan have the keys? Number two, Jesus didn't have to wrestle the keys from him. There was no battle that Jesus did with, with Satan. The Bible doesn't talk about that battle. The, ba the only battle that Jesus fought was on the cross against sin and at the resurrection against death. Okay? And by rising from the dead, he was able to pave the way for us having that same life. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, none of you would be born again today. All right, we're going to get into that when we talk about justification and, and such. But at the cross, and, and I'm, I, I want us to, to see the, the power of the cross because it's liberalism with the moral influence theory that truly empties the cross of its power. It is just an example. Just like looking at that, looking at a painting, that just so inspires me. But that painting sitting on the wall has no power. It accomplishes nothing. It's not active. It's static. It's passive. It just speaks a message, and that's all. That is not the cross. Amen. The cross has power, and it accomplished something real at that time, and the price was paid and applied to us when we believe, and therefore we are saved. Okay, I want to get into this concept of propitiation. Is it propitiation? Is it expiation? When we were in 1 John 2, 2, we came across that term, atonement. Let me just read it to you one more time. It says, <clears throat> he, excuse me, atonement. He is the atoning sacrifice. That word atoning sacrifice is the Greek word elasmos. And it literally means atonement, or as the NIV says, atoning sacrifice. Do we translate this word propitiation, and I'm not going to write it down because it's going to take up half the class just for me to do that, um, or is it expiation? Now, those are big, profound theological terms, and the NIV has chosen not to get into that um, and just let the rest of the scripture speak for itself. And I do believe that the rest of Scripture speaks for itself concerning propitiation or expiation. Here's the bottom line. Whether, this, whether we translate this word atoning sacrifice 
or propitiation or expiation, the Bible teaches all three of these views. Whether we feel compelled, ilasmos should be translated propitiation or expiation. And, and so I don't want to argue about which way this word should go because there are scripture verses that talk about the cross accomplishing both. What does propitiation mean? Some of the notes that I wrote down there might help you. It says here. Okay, what does it say there, Scott? Wait, let me just grab another thing here. Okay, is this from Wikipedia or is it? Wikipedia. Thanks, Scott. What is it? what is propitiation? Um, it's the it's the propitiation is is I think I'm I'm not completely sure, but it's the um, replacement of one thing for another. It's the transference of one thing for another. Um, that would be the idea of substitution. Right. Propitiation goes further in this. Okay, so you can read from the book, and what does it say, Scott? I already said that. <laughs> satisfies, it satisfies, it you did say that? Okay, I, I was probably speaking over you. And you made it repeat it, so you thought you were wrong. <laughs> satisfies God's wrath. Here is, here is why... <clears throat> Reinhold Niebuhr says it is um, oh one second I'll get it it talks about God's wrath here he said a God without wrath but brought men without sin but a God without wrath and so within liberalism now Reinhold Niebuhr is not off the hook by the way okay um, even though he gave us this great quote um, he was not a conservative. Um, within liberalism, they view the love of God as so powerful that it wins out over any potential punishment that could come our way. And therefore, God is not angry with us because, because he is filled with love. As a matter of fact, sin is not an offense to God. So God's wrath doesn't need to be appeased. Our sin is an offense against one another, so knock it off. Okay, knock it off. You'll go to heaven. Knock it off. So it is everything between us and not being selfish and has nothing to do with our offense towards God. And, but see, this, this is the heart of the gospel, what did, what did David say in Psalm 51? Against you and you only have I sinned. Liberalism erases that verse from their Bible and it says, against my brother have I sinned and only him. Against Uriah, against Bathsheba. They're the only ones that I have truly been, that I have truly faulted and hurt. Okay? And the liberal one wants to view God as this emotionally impermeable God who would never get angry. You know, this explosive anger of God where he brought judgment was simply a, a superstitious people trying to understand God with a little bit of flavor of paganism. You know what they do? You know, in paganism, you sacrifice these offerings and sometimes even human sacrifices. You might even throw Joe into the volcano and you appease the, the volcano god and now he's not going to erupt 
and belch out over you know, magma all over the people, lava, and kill the, the people on the island. So, woo Let's throw Joe, into the volca- Joe in the volcano. Old movie, sorry. <clears throat> and so, they, we get this... It's, it's easy for us to slip into this view of a pagan view of God and his wrath being satisfied. He's really angry. And maybe you see some of these you know, real angry idol faces. That's the angry God. And we must appease him. And we have to sacrifice these sacrifices. Maybe more sacrifices. Maybe we should give him gold. How else can we buy off this God's anger so he's nice to us now? And hopefully at some point we will have given enough or we will have performed enough and we'll make him happy. That is a total works-oriented gospel because it empties God of love and mercy, which in most people's mind is the opposite of wrath. So they cannot understand God's wrath. It stands opposed to his love. And we don't want an angry God. You know, we might as well throw someone in a volcano. We want a, we want a God of love. You know, how many of you want a God of love? I mean, I want a God of love. I want him to love me. But see, he does. But that cannot erase his wrath. His wrath is in Scripture, John three thirty six. It's there. We cannot erase God's wrath. Now, the neo-Orthodox would say, well, maybe we need to redefine God's wrath. Now, we don't need to redefine God's wrath unless we're misdefining, misdefining it by some pagan ways that God is angry, he's volatile, he's like this little child with a temper tantrum. And you know, have you ever had, maybe some of you grew up with a dad that had a really bad temper and little things would make him angry so you're constantly trying to appease his anger. That is not God. That's a, that is a horrible picture of God, but that's the picture most people have. They, they view anger with rejection and with, with just flying off the handle, punching their fist through a wall. And it's a distorted picture of wrath, okay? We, we do need to understand wrath because it's God's wrath that was satisfied, all right? The Father loves the Son and has placed everything in his hands. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on him. We were, Ephesians 2 says, we were by nature objects of wrath. We were born as an object of wrath. We were born a slave to sin, and in our sinning, we were objects of God's wrath. God's wrath is, I don't want to say simply, God's wrath is best understood this way. When we sin, it affects the very nature of who God is. It runs so contrary to him. It would, um, and I used in a sermon at one point, that if you poke me, I will bleed. I can do none other than bleed. The only way I can bleed is to take, and I'm going to guess medically here, take such a coagulant in my blood, if I'm even using the right terminology, so that maybe a tiny drop of blood would begin to surface and it immediately clots, Okay. Um, we do have, what is the blood clotting mechanism in our, body, our, our blood? Platelets, okay. You know, and, and so those who have fewer platelets, if that terminology is correct here and we're on the right track, fewer platelets, you, you, know, you can bleed out pretty easily. So you know, if we have a lot of them, maybe, then if you prick me, I, I won't do that. But 
it's it God's wrath is an overflow. It is a it is natural. It is a part of who God is, not in flying off the handle, not an out of control temper tantrum, emotionally uh, controlled deity that flies off the handle at sin. It is an offense to his holiness and wrath is what follows. It will follow every time by the nature of who God is. Not as an immature person. God is the most mature being, if I can even say mature, because he's perfect, all right? Uh, Being ever to exist and ever will. And so wrath, actually, if God is love, then wrath must flow from his love. Now, the liberals or neo-Orthodox really jump on that. Uh, uh, yeah, they neo-Orthodox jump on this. And so they themselves even downplay the wrath of God. Reinhold Niebuhr would be one who would embrace universal salvation along with William Barclay and a gajillion other guys. And because they don't want a God that will punish sin forever. And they just don't understand the wrath of God. Jesus took upon himself the punishment that we deserved. I deserved God's wrath and his punishment, which is simply a byproduct of offending his holiness. And Again, it's not as if when you offend me, I might lose my temper and it gets out of control. No. The very nature of God is holiness. What it is like to offend that holiness on God's part, we'll never know because we're not God. But God must pour out his wrath. I, I want to call it almost a formula. It's just that this is how... I bleed if I'm pricked. God's wrath is poured out when his, when his holiness is offended. Okay? But his goal is not for us to try and appease it by whatever we can do. Because nothing that we can do will make that offense right. The offense against his holiness has to be made right. You can't try and appease him. Oh, don't get angry. You know, calm down. Let me just play the harp. Maybe that will soothe you, God, like David did with Saul. No, that's not what is going to work. Isaiah 53, 5. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. The Father laid upon him the iniquity of us all. That is the heart of this idea of propitiation. God's wrath satisfied by Christ's perfect substitutionary sacrifice. The idea of expiation is different in that it washes away sins. And so um, so we receive forgiveness. So propitiation tends to focus more on what happened with God, his wrath is satisfied, and expiation more what happens with us, our sins are forgiven, okay? But both speak of this substitutionary sacrifice that provides an atonement or at-one-ment, reconciliation with the Father, okay? So both of these, even though you're not going to look up in your Bibles 
and find in the Greek propitiation or expiation. It's one Greek word. However you translate it, the, the truth is Scripture teaches both of these ideas. Both of these ideas. The NIV understands that, so it kind of stands a little bit neutral in how we're going to define this or what word we're going to use, and it just calls it an atoning sacrifice or an atonement. Fair enough. But let's understand. Christ's sacrifice satisfied the wrath of God because he was punished. And Christ's sacrifice paid for my sins so that I am forgiven. So do you understand that propitiation focuses on what Christ did in satisfying God's wrath, but expiation is, it, it now provides, um, the, it, it, he took upon himself my punishment so that we are forgiven. So both of these concepts, very biblical and honestly very profound. Um, yeah, okay, sure. Um, propitiation, expiation. Is placation just superfluous? Like, is it even needed? It, it would, placation would just be another term for propitiation. Okay. Because okay. you're placating or satisfying the wrath of God. All right. And, and again, do, I mean, do you guys understand the difference between the pagan view of trying to satisfy the wrath of their God and the Christian view of Christ's sacrifice and only Christ's sacrifice being able to satisfy God's wrath, which is the natural overflow or result of his perfect holiness being offended? Okay. You guys, you got that? You understand it then? All right. Um, what time do I have here? Yeah, we're, we're, I need to wrap this up. It is for this reason when we, I'll word it this way, when we re-empower the cross. When we give back to the cross what the gospel meant for it to have. When we re-adorn the cross of its majesty. And not empty it like this moral influence theory does. But when we re-adorn the cross of all of its majesty. And we see Christ and what he accomplished. We must come to the realization that my salvation truly has nothing to do with my performance. Nothing to do with my performance. I can never do enough. I can never be good enough to satisfy God's righteous demands, God's wrath. I can't. And so for every day that I live, I, I need to be careful. I am not stepping onto this treadmill of performance. Maybe if I read my Bible every day, I will find favor in God's eyes and he will be good to me. And I'll get A's on my tests, the boss will like me, and the dog will stop biting me. Okay? The truth is, this is a picture of many Christians living their lives trying to please God. Trying to earn God's unmerited goodness, his grace. So contradictory. I hope I worded that in a way that you can see that. 
And, and the more we're able to see the cross and what, how it has impacted me today by faith, by faith that's now applied to me, I do not have to do anything to earn his love, to gain his favor, for him to smile upon me. He is the God that rejoices over me with singing. There is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. When I stumble into sin, I recognize there is an emotional response of grief, and there should be. But if I remain in that sorrow and I keep praying, God, please forgive me, please forgive me, please forgive me, and I wake up the next day, God, please forgive me, and the next day, please forgive me, we we have to realize this sorrow is beginning to miss the cross. I think we should be sorrowful for our sin, even as a Christian. But if we lose focus of what Christ has accomplished, we will be overwhelmed with the sinfulness of our sin and its guilt and shamefulness every day, and it will immobilize us. The cross frees us from that. The cross allows us to enter into this life of victory that though I fall seven times, I know the cross is still sufficient and I will rise up again and the righteous man falls seven times but rises again. I'm going to get up. I'm going to keep moving forward. God holds nothing against me. He is my greatest cheerleader. Why? Because of how well I'm performing? No, of how well his son performed. Back here at the cross, purchasing my salvation here, applying it at my moment of conversion, age 14, and now I get to walk in this freedom that, of course, every day, don't be taken on the slide. Satan is going to try and whisper in your ear, no, 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 you are such a horrible sinner. Why would God want to bless you? Have you ever had him whisper in your ear like that before? Mm-hmm. Thoughts like that coming into your mind? Absolutely a doctrine of demons, a lie from the pit of hell, um, untrue, because it runs totally contrary to the cross itself. Amen? Let's, let's pray. Father, I'm going to thank you that you sent your son Jesus to die for our sins, to secure our salvation. Thank you for the power of the cross. Thank you that Full punishment, not partial. You don't go to purgatory. Full payment for the punishment that was due me was laid on him. All on Jesus. What amazing grace. Father, I pray every day, let the gospel, the truth of the gospel be my strength, be my my hope, my security. I pray every time the devil lies and tries to whisper anything contrary to what the cross has already accomplished for me. Help every single one of us, God, not just me, recognize that and run to the truth of the cross every time, God. Find our hope, our acceptance, our love, our forgiveness. The fact that you smile upon us and you rejoice that your love has been lavished upon us and will continue to be lavished upon us. It's all about you, Jesus, and what you've accomplished for us. Thank you. Jesus. Amen.